Well, good morning. If you are of a certain age, you will no doubt recall the uh, traumatic choosing of teams during PE class or on the playground at recess. You know, where two people were selected to be the team leaders and then they lined everybody up on the playground and started choosing people to be on their team. It was such a racket. Because, you know, of course you had to choose your best friends or the ones that you had a crush on. But the ones who always got chosen first were the biggest, strongest, most athletic boys. And if you were last, it was either because you were the one that would rather be inside playing chess than outside playing dodgeball, or everybody was mad at you. Nobody wanted to be last. It was the worst, right? Everybody wanted to be first. And I suppose if you wanted to win at dodgeball on the school playground, then you were wise to pick the most athletic kids for your team and not, say, the math wizard. Although, extra points to you if you happen to be both, right? But not a lot of thought was given to grades or personalities even, moral convictions and ethical behaviors. You didn't even have to like the kid that you chose first as long as you knew he could score goals. And I think that we uh, train them up young when they're young, don't we? Teaching them that physical strength and swagger is best. It's no wonder that our global leadership is such a mess right now. We learn at a young age that leadership requires one to be tough, bold, competitive, confident, abrasive even. Someone who can take it on the chin as if violence were like a natural thing that occurred in the workplace every day. I'd even argue that that kind of thinking is one of the reasons that we have so few women CEOs, for example, and have yet to elect a woman president in the United States. We're so binary in our thinking that we think people who don't fit that traditional macho leadership expectation can't lead, or that so-called feminine traits are somehow not effective. Anyway, this has been the rule of thumb for thousands of years, millennia, throughout history. Think of every famous and infamous world leader you can, as far back as you can go in time. With very few exceptions, it almost goes without saying that people prefer strength and might when it comes to leaders, or at least what they perceive to be strength and might, because sometimes all it is is bluster and bravado. Well, this is Christ the King Sunday. And Christ the King Sunday is a relatively new observation in the Christian church throughout the world. It's only been around since the 1930s. But we celebrate it each Sunday uh, before Advent begins. And this morning's reading is obviously more reminiscent of something we would hear at Easter time. But it gets me thinking in particular about those qualities of what it means to be a leader. And I think about that time when the crowds lined the streets of Jerusalem the week of Palm Sunday, celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. It was because they saw in him the promise of a leader 
the Messiah, the king, the one who would lead them out of the oppression of Rome and into victory. And Jesus asked the people, essentially, what kind of king do you want? And they naturally would have thought, well, a strong one, a bold one, a courageous and confident one, one who can take on the armies of the Roman Empire. And what they got was something entirely different. In the end, in fact, they say, we want a king, but not one like you. Christians and Jews alike have had a very complicated and tricky relationship with kings. From the time that God called Abraham and everyone wandered through the desert and on into the promised land, God's people had been a pretty egalitarian people. They had judges who would kind of rule over disputes in the community. They had prophets and priests who would offer a word from God. But God could never figure out that for some reason, the people wanted to be like everyone else and have a king. They say as much in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, they say, we want to be like other nations. They all have kings to govern over them and fight their battles. That's what we want. God was pretty dejected there in 1 Samuel, in fact. He said of their insistence on having a royal figurehead, They've rejected me. God said they refuse to simply let me rule over their lives. And so God did as the people requested. He appointed Saul as the very first king of Israel. And it was pretty much hit or miss after that. Any, any book you want to read, take a look through the Old Testament, especially the first and second kings and the account of all the rulers that, that were then at the time. And it, it reads kind of like a roller coaster ride. This one did what was good in the sight of the Lord. This one did what was evil. This one did what was good. This one did what was evil. It's back and forth like that and a really great pattern for us of human behavior because we see it still. But you see, from the very beginning, God didn't want us to place our trust and our focus on earthly kingdoms. God wants people to place their trust in God alone. But when we feel threatened, when we feel fearful of the future, when we feel powerless over something, we want someone to protect us and to fight our battles. It's really an existential problem that cuts across all human situations, all of us in every situation. We want leaders who can check the boxes of strength and authority, even if we don't particularly even like them or their values. Just like the kid on the playground that you were trying to choose for dodgeball at recess, you don't even have to like them. We just think that in them, we will be made stronger. The nation will be stronger. The economy will be stronger. Our values will be strengthened. At work, we think that the right leader will improve the workplace and our quality of life and maybe even make us look good. In our classrooms, in our schools, we think the right teachers will be the ones to help our kid flourish. And sometimes these things do improve lives, no doubt. 
But listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the people in the church at Colossae. He said, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from God's glorious power. For God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from God's power. As Christians, we're being asked to be intentional about our choices in this life, to fight the urge, that existential angst, to let fear rule in our hearts, and instead to remember that our strength comes from someplace else entirely. We have been rescued, in fact, from needing to make decisions based on fear. And we are now in the kingdom of Jesus, who rules in our hearts and in our minds. We talked last week about the impermanence of all things of this world, that eventually everything will crumble and fall. What lasts is true transformation, which comes from the heart. It's why we invite Jesus in there. When I was five years old, I asked my mom, what does it mean to be saved? I'd heard that term in church, and I wondered about it. And she said, very simply, it means to invite Jesus into your heart. It's the most simple and basic interpretation of our gospel message, and that's what five-year-olds need, right? But isn't it also the most accurate? The only authority and power that Jesus wants is to help us transform ourselves from the inside out so that we can help transform the world. If Jesus rules in our hearts, then we have the ability to create the kind of world we want. And what's more, we can cultivate at a moment's notice that peaceful interior world, even in the midst of the craziness of the one we actually live in. Jesus' power and authority is vastly different than what we see and read about and are subjected to. Jesus' power is not over people, it's with people. Now, power over versus power with is something that's been talked about for years and written about. It's nothing new, but it bears expanding on a little bit in light of our thinking about Christ as king. So power with or power over is built on force. Power over is built on coercion and domination and control, and it motivates largely through fear. Power over says some people have power and some people don't. Power with, though, is shared power. Power with grows out of a collaboration and relationship between people. It's built on respect and on mutual support and empowerment and collaborative decision-making. And power within is self-knowledge. It's the power that comes from knowing that while we don't know everything, we do have the ability within ourselves to discern wisely and to act lovingly. We get one of the most striking examples of power with as Jesus hung on the cross with two men 
on either side of him. Remember, the people had just ushered him into Jerusalem as their would-be king, only to declare a few days later that he was not, in fact, the kind of king they wanted. And so he hung on a cross. And one of the men hanging beside him, also sentenced to death by torture, said, if you're the king, save yourself. And the man on the other side rebuked him, tells him to be quiet. That unlike the two of them, the two criminals, this man, Jesus, was innocent. And then that man turned his head toward Jesus as they hung on their crosses and said, remember me in your kingdom. And what does Jesus tell him? I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus refuses to show his power over and instead appears in abject vulnerability on that cross. He does not come down off the cross to prove his kingly status. Instead, he remains right there, suffering with those who suffer. He doesn't vow retribution or vengeance. Instead, he offers forgiveness. That's power with. By the way, Jesus doesn't promise a better tomorrow to the man who is being executed alongside him. He simply offers to redeem him today, right now. Today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. In the Christian church, we talk a lot about hope for a better tomorrow, that in all things, things will be in, in, in the end, all things will be made new. That yes, we need endurance for the race, but to hold hope for a better tomorrow for things to come. And yet, here is a message Jesus is giving us, a strong message for today, right now in this moment. Jesus isn't talking about some future time when he's going to show up and make things right. In this instance, he's talking about today. Today you will be with me in paradise. He is redeeming us right now. You do not have to wait to be seen and heard and loved by this king. This king already knows and loves you. Today, you are redeemed. And you know what redeemed means? It means to be free. It means to be liberated, free from all the worries, free from all the pain, free from all the distractions. Jesus didn't want to be king. Isn't it interesting that we set aside a whole day of the church calendar to the very title that he himself rejected? Maybe it should be called ruler of hearts day since that's what he really wants, but I guess St. Valentine already has a lock on that one. In the end, I think the church wanted us to be a little bit suspicious of those who would lord over us with fear and shame in this world, and to remember that the only ruler we really need has already freed us, and in fact has promised us paradise. So, happy Christ the King Day, friends. Amen.